The opinions expressed on questions you didn't ask are those of the individual participants and do not reflect those of their respective employers and institutions. Welcome back to Questions You Didn't Ask and the series I called out, but they didn't hear me with our guests, Dr. Marianne Perot and Dr. Gifford Rainey as we explore the topic of healthcare diversity and inclusion in the UK and beyond. Let's get back into the conversation. So speaking of work environments and, you know, considering that, you know, a lot of the work that I do and that we all three of us do is around health equity. We have alluded to this to this topic in the past that the healthcare system in the United States is vastly different from what it is in the UK. We have a completely privatized system with the exception of Medicaid and Medicare, Medicaid being for people who are low income and a very select portion of that low income population. And then Medicare, which is for our elderly population, mm -hmm. both of which are funded through our taxes. And with that, outside of those two exceptions, all of our health care, for the most part, is applied through our employer. And when I say health care, I mean, actually health insurance. That's no. not even getting to the doctor. That's just what you need to get there. So then from there, there's a lot of different aspects of our healthcare system where, you know, we have some communities with like where I live and in, in, in the triangle, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, we have two major academic medical health centers right here, as well as um, private community hospitals and, and, and clinics and things of that sort. But you go in other parts of this same state, not even, you know, the United States as a whole, but other parts, and they are traveling one and two hours to get to see a doctor. And from what I understand, some of that is similar in the UK, but there's one glaring difference, and that is the National Health Service. Can you share more with us about and describe to our audience what the healthcare system in the UK is like? I'll let, uh, I think, um, Marianne should, because she's working directly for the health. Right. She's just kicking so, off. I guess that just so people are aware, the, the National Health Service is paid for through taxation. It means that access to any type of healthcare is free at the point of access. Mm -hmm. So when you want to go and see your general physician or your family physician, it's free. Mm -hmm. When you want to go to the hospital or you need any kind of procedure or you turn up in, in the emergency department, it's all free. Mm -hmm. You don't have to pay anything else. In terms of things like medications, depending on how much you earn, you may have to pay a little bit towards your medications, but they're significantly cheaper than obviously America. And there's a, there's a, there's a top rate that you would have to pay and it's not yeah. very much money. In terms of dentistry, very similar. You if, if you are on the poorest end of the spectrum, you wouldn't have to pay for dentistry, although you've got to find a dentist, which could be really challenging post-COVID. And then, you know, there are set prices in terms of, of what the cost of that dental treatment will be. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of the kind of golden eggs, I guess, that we have in the UK. Mm -hmm. It is very highly thought of. 
as Gifford's mentioned uh, before, that there is a political party that is currently in power that has tried to dismantle it, but it is an institution here. Like, it, I mean, it's it's thought of very highly and is probably the one thing that people are happy to pay their taxes for. Mm. I think where it becomes, you know, where it's become problematic is the rapid change of pace mm -hmm. for new medical treatments mm. and the cost of those treatments and the population growth, which, mm. um, you know, not everybody who you know the ads there's been added to the population will necessarily be in paid work and mm -hmm. then finally we like every other you know um high income country we have an aging population you know mm -hmm. um so becoming almost unaffordable to run keep running a system like this unless something's kind of got to give hasn't it you know we either have to lower our expectations as a population or have a smaller choice of things that is free at the point of access and then you might need to pay for other things but at the moment pretty make, much everything is free or we make so, a lot of contributions <laughs> or we make a contribution which is similar to kind of the australian system so that's that's kind of a, a sum up and, it, and you know there are some advantages in having a system like this in that the cost of healthcare. Mm -hmm. for a national health service like we have is probably one of the lowest spends in the world so america's mm. is probably the highest yes um through the insurance system and ours is one of the lowest but mm. as as i've said mentioned lots of things are at breaking point and i think post covid that has become even more challenging and challenging in terms of some of the inequalities that have been highlighted through covid and also workforce shortages. So as I said, the demand is the highest it has ever been, but we do not have enough people who want to work in health. Um, yeah. And you would have thought having this fantastic health system would mean we have less inequity. Mm. Uh, that, but that has been proven not to be true. So just as an example, if you were a black mum having a baby in a hospital, Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you don't have to pay anything for any hospital in the UK. You are four times more likely to die in childbirth mm -hmm. than somebody who's white. Mm -hmm. That's just because you're black. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. During COVID, you know, if you were a black or ethnic minority, you were 3.3 times more likely to die from COVID wow. for no other reason than the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. So these are the challenges that we have on top of all of those other things around increasing demand and not enough money in the system and not enough workforce. We also have, you know, as we've talked about this elephant in the room, which is around racism that we also mm. have to contend with in how we kind of improve the health outcomes for our population equitably mm -hmm. um, across the UK. I would I just add simply that the different social trends that have changed and have imposed themselves on the working shall we say or one of the viable working or viable operations of the nhs are not a surprise to the government so you know it's true that we've we've got an aging population it's true that we mm -hmm. 
have new you know new waves of immigrations and so on and type of illnesses but it's not a shock to the government the government knew about these studies as old as 30 years ago demonstrated right. the, the what one should expect so i would say from where i stand a lot of the issue is about investments so that we have a party that doesn't believe in the ethos of having free free healthcare at the point of entry mm -hmm. and, and so understandably they don't invest as much as they could i as i mentioned you know my first real job was working in in the hospital for six summers thereafter i was a hospital chaplain for a number of mm. years for a number of things firsthand my daughter is a manager in the of in the national health service mm -hmm. i i said to her you're a junior manager she said no i'm not dad i'm i'm actually a proper manager <laughs> <laughs> good I for her i have a nephew who's a doctor i was with him yesterday so you know and a brother-in-law's a doctor. My I've got a sister who's a dentist. So you know, the, the, my mother was a nurse before I was born. So there's you know the whole healthcare mm -hmm. uh, runs through our blood, so to speak. And I feel very passionate about about the equitability um, that it should uh, deliver on uh, for all people, irrespective of who they are. Mm. And so when I say that things can be improved by mm -hmm. by raising our tech taxation by one p one penny or two pennies uh, and that can make you know a huge difference to, mm -hmm. to the provision of care national health care for everyone trust me i know what i'm talking about the other so we do have a private health a private health care system as well i mean it's mm -hmm. much more than the national health care system and the private health care system rather like that in the states is really uh peopled by you know people who can afford it people who are rich mm -hmm. um, people who are generally wealthy or people who are very um well-to-do jobs and and i can and i can understand because i've had private healthcare in the past i can understand if, if you've had an entire if your entire life has been privileged with uh, private health care mm -hmm. how you would be less sensitized to people who actually need help you know because they can't afford it i could understand mm -hmm. how you might look down at those kind of individuals or you might be desensitized to their need mm. um, but nevertheless you know if if you're in government i and you know the national health service started in 1948 it came just after the war and it's true that it started it was started by the labor party which is mm -hmm. the party in opposition and in many ways it is the golden egg as as marianne said of mm -hmm. our of of our society of our civilization really mm -hmm. It can be a lot better. That's that's the thing. As, and having travelled in Europe and see other systems, you just know that it can be a lot better. Yeah. You know, for, I just heard one recent report: eighty-six percent. This was on the radio this weekend. Eighty-six percent of of the UK believe that the NHS is in a bad uh, state. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Seven million people waiting on the waiting list, and it, you know yeah. this is record high 
dissatisfaction. Mm. And I, I think, though, I'm going to be a bit of a dissenting view because it's not that I don't agree with Gifford in terms mm. of how important the NHS is. I think we need to move away from it being sacred mm-hmm. um, mm. and too sacred to change. And mm. I think that if we don't change, it will die. It's currently, I would say it's in a death spiral. It's that bad. And it's that bad because of the rising costs of medicines. You know, pharma are making a lot of money. <laughs> the rising cost of new technologies that we, we, of course, we're, you know, populations expect us to give them the best. The rising cost of treatments, um, the rising cost of labor, you know, yeah. so the workforce expect to have an increase in salary. Yeah. And and it's it's not mm-hmm. sustainable. So I guess my experience in Australia was was quite different, and it yes. really opened my eyes to perhaps a third way, which is a mixed model of some private for those that can mm-hmm. afford it, and you know public free at the point of access for those that can't. Mm-hmm. And maybe there needs to be a shift in thinking that needs to happen. I just I can't see it happening for quite some time. It's, it's, it's like it's such a strong belief. Yeah, it's yeah. ingrained in people. As Gifford yeah. said, I, I talk to people and they can name their mother, their father, their brothers, their aunts and uncles, because the NHS employs, you know, mm. one and a half million people. It's yeah. the mm-hmm. largest employer in the world. Mm. Wow. So, so everybody knows somebody who mm. works for it. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes incredibly different, difficult to challenge the thinking around it because it, it mm-hmm. needs real thinking. But but what happens, you know, it becomes uh, another game of political football. And, you know, what we need is a really grown-up conversation yeah. around mm. it. I agree. I agree. Sustainable. I agree 100% that I just think, I guess I think more in terms of a socialist model of the provision of care, the provision of education, the provision mm. of housing and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I know with the right kind of investments, it can happen. If we're thinking purely in terms of capitalism, then sure, it has to change and it has to be very, very different and look very, very different. But maybe this is not a conversation for now. <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, it's, it is really hard. You know, it's, it, as I said, we need grown up conversations around no. it. Yeah. We're talking, you know, there's never been more money that has been put into the NHS as there is this year. I mean, it's the but budget. But as a proportion of our GDP, though, as a proportion of I, our I guess I'm just saying that perhaps the answer is not more money. Right. right. And, and and have a discussion around that. I, I I think that unfortunately, because of the the belief system that sits around it, it becomes this similar to what we said previously before around racism. It's a very mm. clunky old institution that is really hard to change. Yeah, and and that's the reality that we're up against at the moment. It's it's really hard to change, but I think more needs to be done. And where I'd like to see some of the investment freed up is to look at health inequalities. Mm. Is to say, why are four times more black mothers dying in childbirth in a high-income country? This Mm. should not be happening. You know, it's absolutely wrong that those stats are there. 
And what are we going to do to change that? And we might have to be unequal to be equitable. We might have to move. Very unpopular. Yes. People really, you know, they really, you know, hold on to their budgets tightly. Mm. We might have to shift some money from from those that have to those that have not. And, and well, that, think, that's the conversation that we need. Yeah, to that in. that is a very important distinction. That when I say I am a health equity research and action mm. consultant, that I am not talking about giving everybody the same thing. And thinking that that is fair because it is not. I mean, we have spent so much of this conversation talking about all the historic unfairness that has happened and oppression and subjugation and things of that sort. And I think that you are raising an important point about how those distinctions have to be made when we're thinking about policy, how those distinctions have to be enacted when we're talking about um, how to change systems and make them more equitable, if that is truly our goal, you know, mm. and and also the fact that oftentimes what makes institutionalized racism and and challenges in terms of the fair provision and equitable provision of healthcare is that yes, people in power realize that they would have to get uncomfortable. They would have to change. Mm. Change by nature is uncomfortable. Transition yeah. by nature is uncomfortable. Any mm-hmm. time, what do they say? One of the most stressful times a person can experience is when they move. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you're moving to from a small apartment to a mansion. It is mm-hmm. stressful, right? Mm-hmm. The the idea that trans transformation, transition, and change is difficult and uncomfortable, especially for the person who is advantaged by the current system. They will have to adjust, give up some things, right? And so one of the challenges that I see at the root of people who, or systems that dig their heels in is around greed. You Mm. have more than enough. Mm. It's not that you are just teetering by and just getting by by the skin of your teeth. No, Mm. you have more than enough. You have abundant amount and you have become comfortable in that space, which provides enormous freedom, right? And so with that freedom and all those resources and advantages, the idea of changing, transitioning any of that power, any of those resources feels like an attack. And it feels like Again, and we see this a lot in the U.S. You see this in regard to even gun control, which, of course, is going down a whole nother rabbit hole where people have more than enough guns. But they are afraid that if you restrict one person or two people, that that is somehow inching toward taking away their overall power. So adjustments and edits are difficult for people who have historically been in power. And, and with that, There are lots of different just norms that people have about what should be and what is and why. And some of that is like, well, the reason why Black people are dying of COVID is because of what they believe about Black people, right? It's not about themselves performing systems and procedures in a way that are inequitable. 
So what are some of the cultural norms and assumptions about healthcare that are common among Black people who are seeking healthcare and healthcare providers about those Black people that can sometimes contribute to the health disparities you mentioned in the UK? What are some of those common things? Well, whatever those common things are, and I'll share a few, got to remember they are shaped by a range of factors, right? Mm-hmm. Including historical legacies of colonialism and African enslavement that we talked about and racism and uh, people's contemporary experiences of discrimination and, uh, and say, marginalization. So that has created for a number of us mistrust of the healthcare institutions. Mm-hmm. And this, mis- this mistrust is very real. I remember some years ago, uh, my sister who lives in the east part of London, she would say, no, you know, if she heard that a black person was going to a particular hospital, you know, we would pray and fast for that black person. Wow, yes. And we would try and obstruct that person going into that hospital. Things have developed better in that area, but this is the sort of mistrust that goes on simply because of some of the statistics that Mary Ann has just mentioned. This mistrust was acutely felt and brought into sharp relief um, during uh, the COVID lockdown. Mm. Um, Not only more people died, i.e. patients, Mm-hmm. But more practitioners died. So a lot more practitioners died black of, of Black and Asian extract than white folk. And this was not because we were, constitution, health constitution was not as great as our white counterpart. But it was simply because many of the provision of um, protective care was not there for us. Also, there is a cultural predisposition within Black and Asian people to want to help in a time of in the time of crisis. Mm. A, re- a recent uh, research, Oxford research done by a friend of mine came out this year, uh, published in one of the journals, demonstrated this that many Black and Asian people, practitioners, medical practitioners, saw it as their duty to go frontline and to help out and um, mm. whereas their counterparts were more inclined not to help out or to use excuse, genuine excuses presumably not mm-hmm. to get because of the, the the legacy and discrimination racism healthcare because of cultural assumptions that people have of us and uh, the pathologization that goes on with that and that's, that goes in tune with the title of our podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I cried out, but they did, the doctor didn't hear me. And um, so there is this, and maybe later on I will develop this, there is a lack of cultural competence that render health practitioners colorblind, tone deaf, mm-hmm. flat-footed, when it comes to dealing with people of diverse backgrounds. And it would seem that because of this, the the services don't recognize the impact of racism and systemic inequalities on on us as a people, on our mental health, and they don't support us because of racial trauma. Racial trauma 
is a thing and it's becoming people are doing more research now on racial trauma than ever before but it's not the sort of thing that you can go to the doctor with right you can't say, mm-hmm. doctor, you know i was racially excluded from a group da, 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 give me a couple of pills so that i can mm-hmm. yeah, you, know, you just can't do that but racial trauma so racial trauma it bears out in in many in manifold ways and that's an issue of course there's issues in regards to linguistic barriers and mm-hmm. cultural barriers so because of these we're finding it just difficult to to have that trust in a service that is meant for everybody mm. yeah i don't look i i don't think the problems are any different really to the problems that you're probably experiencing. So, you know, as Gifford alluded to, there there is this his, very strong historical component that is still baked into medicine and it's mm. baked into how we teach our future health clinicians. Mm-hmm. So, for example, black women birth differently to white women oh. and they don't have as much pain. Mm. So, that's what's taught in this midwifery and then what we have is that black women don't get any pain relief that's right when Mm -hmm. physiologically research has shown actually black women have more pain wow than white women Mm. so this is these are not scientific components they're strongly rooted into the practices that happened within the slave trade within colonialism that Mm. birth obstetrics and gynecology mm. into the modern world which uh, yes. you know started started in the uk and then went to america mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. went to canada and australia and all those other places so th- these are untruths that are written into medical mm-hmm. practice mm. which have yet to be reversed so another one might be it's called the gl- glomerular filtration rate so it's basically how well your kidneys are performing Mm-hmm. So there is a, a standard measure for all people, but there is still a, a, a code where you're supposed to adjust for if you're a black person. Mm. So you can have a worse kidney function as a black person, but apparently still be okay. That's, mm. oh, that's wow. what the medical textbooks told you. So black people obviously had much worse outcomes in terms of kidney disease, Mm-hmm. much um, less likely to be offered dialysis, much mm-hmm. higher rates of death. And, of course, it's nonsense. Researchers mm-hmm. come out and say there is no difference in ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are, there are a number of things that are, are kind of compounding of, of these factors. Add in, you know, as you've said, Gifford, that intergenerational trauma in mm. terms of, you know, I've heard many black families tell me, oh, they didn't go to the hospital because it's the hospital of death, because they only mm. know family members that have gone there that have died. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why they don't want to go. You know, we've got issues where, you know, race is strongly linked to social class and social deprivation. So mm-hmm. you'll find people don't have transport. Really no. simple mm. thing. There isn't a bus route that stops no. next to the hospital. No. Or, you know, I don't have a mobile phone to do telehealth on mm-hmm. for, the, for the clinician. Or I didn't have data. I don't have the internet. You mm-hmm. know, for all of these new technologies that are coming out mm-hmm. that are just not accessible mm-hmm. to those that are in a lower social demographic um, mm-hmm. 
class. So I think that there are lots of these factors that kind of all compound. And then ultimately, with, with our health service here in the UK, we've built it on the 80-20 rule. Mm. So, you know, for 80% of the population, it probably ah. works quite well. But if you are, if you fall outside of the standard person, you know, mm-hmm. you might have various different, you might have a disability, you might, you know, as we said, you know, you know, might be from a very poor area, you might have no transport, you might have poor housing, lots of different factors, you might have poor literacy, so you can't mm-hmm. actually read the information that comes out, mm-hmm. you it won't fit for you. Mm-hmm. And it's only where we've got regional solutions local solutions where ah, they've thought yes. about their mm-hmm. population and the patient demographics that we've seen real initiatives that try to address that imbalance but mm-hmm. in general the nhs is built on the 80 20 rule mm-hmm. because that's what makes it the most efficient you know yeah. it's a it's a real the reality is trying to bring good health to underserved communities mm. costs money it costs more resources it's harder to do so you know we need leaders to really understand that concept and want and know that they have to put more into those communities to ensure that they have the same level of care as everybody else um, if they don't then obviously those inequalities will probably just widen especially mm-hmm. As, you know, some of the newer technologies are coming in. You know, we see more probably digital exclusion with mm-hmm. our black and brown communities. And, you know, if you have poor poor literacy and poor health literacy, you're not going to know about the latest treatment for your cancer mm-hmm. or you know, other things that might be coming onto the market. You're not going to be educated enough to navigate what is increasing complexity within our health system. So this is kind of end up with this two-tier system mm-hmm. where those that are really well educated, you know, get more, more than they need, as you've said. And, mm-hmm. and those who are at the lower end do not have enough at all. Mm-hmm. They're, they're way, way behind. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's it's a concept that, as we've talked about, it's not new. I mean, there's we've got someone, um, a very well-known researcher here in the UK, Sir Michael Marmot. He wrote about health inequalities in the UK 10, 15 years ago. You know, significant mm-hmm. government papers on it. Mm. But I think it's only since COVID and seeing the stark reality and the data that's come out from COVID as to how unequal the impact of COVID has been, that it's really taken the leaders to say that they're going and say, and also have a stick that they have to legislatively mm-hmm. do something about this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. I, you know, I, I feel optimistic that we're headed in the right direction, but you know, it's, it's a long time coming and things have, you know, steadily got worse, you know, as time has gone on. And now with the kind of this economic crisis, you know, people are really feeling mm-hmm. it in their pocket in terms of the, the financial impacts on, on those that are the most underserved within our communities. Mm-hmm. It's a tough time. Mm. 
It is indeed. It's a tough time. And we are, you know, whether we like it or not, we are all in this together. And I think one of the challenges that I know that we have here in the U.S., and I imagine that is the same in the U.K., is making the quote unquote business case for health equity. Right. And and how to shift from this whole 80-20 or equality model into an equity model. And as you mentioned before, given the time and resources that are necessary, recognizing that these outcomes are the result of generations and decades. If you really want to take it even further in terms of some of the historic stuff that we're talking about, centuries of Mm -hmm. compounding belief systems, policies, structures, and just ways of interacting and believing and how we how we connect with people. Thank you for listening to the new series of Questions You Didn't Ask. Join me, your host, Naisha Frey, and my guests, Dr. Marianne Farrow and Dr. Gifford Ramey, next week as our conversation on global diversity and inclusion in healthcare continues.